0: Welcome to the Central Community Church Podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world. Happy New Year, Central! Happy New Year! So how many of you stayed up way too late last night and totally regretting it right now? (laughs) Hands up. Come on, let's see it. Okay, I'm going to be looking for you nodding off, so don't do it. You're not allowed. You've got to pull it together. So this is what happens when you're um, the fifth string preacher at a church. Um, you, get, you get dates like uh, like January 1st, New Year's Day. And so, no, it's really awesome. Um, I love preaching. I love being part of this church. And, and it's really, I, I look at this as a great opportunity because as a church family, I kind of get to set the tone and start us off for the new year um, and and kind of refocus us a little bit, kind of on on who we are as a church and and what we're doing. So that's what I I want to do this morning. I want to talk about um, the Great Commission. I want to get back to our purpose, the reason why we exist as a church. It's the Great Commission. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 28, starting in Verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. When we say the word disciples, we're talking about followers. We're talking about students. That's what we're talking about when, we, when Jesus says disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. So for those of you who aren't familiar with this passage, a little bit of background. This is uh, Jesus' last words while he was here with us on earth over 2,000 years ago. Um, Jesus was a real man, lived a real life, um, did real things, had a real job. Um, And he said um, his last words before leaving us and ascending back into heaven with the Father. His last words to us were these words and surely I am with you always to the end of the age go and make disciples think about that for those of you who have parent, or for those of you who have kids that are you know they're they're 12 11 12 and you're just starting to to kind of leave them by themselves and you're going out for the first time and you're like you're really paranoid really nervous leaving your kid alone by themselves for the first time what's the word last thing that you say to them as you walk out the door really important really really important you think about stories of people that are on their, their deathbed, you know, and they can manage to say just a few more words. Someone's last words are very, 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 very important. So these were Jesus' last, in his body, spoken words to us on while he was here with us on earth before he ascended. His instructions to us were very clear. So I want to take a step back and look at the Great Commission from 10,000 Feet. So God created us, okay, some of us know this, some of us don't, God created us to live in perfect peace with him, in perfect peace with him, and to have full joy. That's why God created us. And um, we said, okay, God, I don't want to live under your authority. I don't want to do what you tell me to do. Yeah, you say, here's the life I've created for you. It's beautiful. It's great. Live here. And we go, God, I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to live here. I want to live my own life. I want to do my own thing. And I want to live over here. And so all of us, we've rebelled. We've gone over here. We've pushed away God and his authority and his commands and the life that he has for us. In turn, not knowing it, it it's pulled away. We've pushed away full peace and joy. And so as a result of that, as a result of not living for the purpose that we were called to, um, we become broken. We're a broken people living in a broken world. You look around and you look at the mess that's everywhere. Um, that's a result of our rebellion and our brokenness. That's where that comes from. It's sin. And the good news is that Jesus entered into our broken world. And uh, through his death, resurrection, his life, death, resurrection, he's picking up the broken pieces and he's putting them back together to the way they were originally supposed to be. That's the gospel at 10,000 feet. Jesus is putting back together the broken. And what he does is, where the Great Commission comes into play, he says, I want you, my sons and daughters, to be a part of this for me, with me. I want you to be a part of this with me. I remember when I was young, I was some of my earliest memories, I was about maybe four or five, and we, uh, before my grandparents died, we lived next door to them. And my grandfather was, he had a beautiful garden, beautiful beautiful garden. It was amazing, and he'd always bring us up fresh veggies all the time. And, and I was little, and I had Tonka trucks, and what I saw was a big pile of dirt. So I would go down, and I would take my Tonka trucks and just rip through his nicely beautiful planted rows, and, and he would come out, and he was he's from the East Coast, not a Christian, a little rough around the edges. He would come out on the balcony and just start yelling at me, Right? That's where I heard my first swear words. Um, he just came out and just started yelling at me. And, you know, then I'd get in trouble. He'd bring me up to the house and tell me to not play in the garden. But my grandfather was a wise, he was a wise man. He was very wise. And so one day he saw me out there playing. And he came out on the step and he didn't yell. He went down and he kind of took me by the hand. And he said, Nate, you know, there's lots of, you know, people and birds and all kinds of things that try to ruin, ruin Grampy's garden. And so I want you to, I want you to help me. I want you to protect it. I want you to come, and I, and I want you, and he showed me actually how to plant, and he showed me all these things and how to care for his garden. And so anytime anything would, you know, ever threaten to step into the garden, I'd be on guard. I would be, you know, but it was a joy. Some of my earliest memories, it was a joy working with my grandfather in his garden. It was a joy. Some of my best memories. And some of you, you have some of those memories with your, with your dad, you know, working side by side with him. Some of you are lucky enough that you own businesses with your dad or you run farms with your dad or whatever. It's just a joy to work with your father. And this is the same thing. God doesn't call us to the Great Commission because it's this burden he wants to put on us to make our lives harder and miserable. That's not what the Great Commission is about. The Great Commission is about God wanting to bring his sons and daughters alongside the work that he is doing. For our joy. For the experience. To see him work. That is what the Great Commission is about. And those were Jesus' commands to us. And I want to say this as gently as possible. I'm not always the best at doing that. But if the Great Commission, so making disciples, helping people to understand Jesus, helping others to follow him, to do life with people in order that they would be able to find fullness of joy and life in Jesus so that they know about him. If that doesn't consume, if you're a self-identifying Christian here, if that doesn't um, consume a lot of your time, a lot of your energy, a lot of your resources, a lot of your thoughts, you probably aren't following Jesus. You probably aren't following Jesus. The Great Commission is not something that concerns you not something that you take very seriously, um, you're probably not following Jesus. Um, A mentor of mine, uh, Rick Barker, he's a pastor in a church up in around the 100 Mile House area. I was listening to him preach one morning and he said this. He said, some people follow Jesus as as if he were on Twitter or on Instagram. We listen and read, but it doesn't affect our lives. To be in proximity of Jesus doesn't mean that you know him. It doesn't mean that you're following him. When you actually follow Jesus, it changes the course of your life. It changes how you live. And for a lot of us, our our hearts are so hard that we don't care about the things that Jesus cares about. And I'm preaching to myself here as well. We don't always care about, we don't love the things that Jesus loves. We're not invested where Jesus is invested. Our priorities are not what his priorities are. We aren't followers. So my hope today is that um, God will use these words in, in the text to to really rekindle your love for him and to give you clarity, to give you purpose and strength to do what it is he's commanded. Because it's not a burden. When we, when we do the Great Commission, when we partner with God in the way that He has designed it to be, it's a joy. So I want to bring some clarity and to help us understand that a little bit. So I want to go over two things, um, two very simple things this morning. I want to look at reasons why we don't and just call some of those things out. And then I want to look at some really brief, practical how-tos of disciple-making and, and really what that looks like. So for you, uh, type A... Uh, personality, like to take notes. Um, Point number one, reasons why we don't, um, why we don't, we don't make disciples. We're not engaged in that process with God. The first part is, we don't know how. We don't have the knowledge, we don't understand, we we don't really even know what that looks like. We don't know how. Um, For those of you who don't know, I'm a police officer, and when I worked up in the 100 Mile House area, there was a lot of grow-ups. A lot of grow-ups. It's kind of the grow-up capital of B.C. for a while, that in the Williams Lake area. And so, um, part of what we do, we do these things, we probably kick about two a week. We'd write search warrants, we go in, we make arrests, we take all the dope, and you know, that, was, that was what we did. And part of what, we partner with Crown Council, and Crown Council are the ones that actually lay the charges and do all that kind of stuff. And so, Crown Council said to our office, they said, okay, in order for us, if there's a, if there's a in order for us to prosecute fully, if there's a hydro bypass, so if these people are stealing energy what we want you to do somehow, whether it's with partnership with BC Hydro, is we want you to actually seize, so take, the electrical panel. Take it from the basement or from the house or whatever it is, and, and we want you to seize that as evidence so we can use that in court cases against them to prove that they're stealing power. And so what we'd have to do is we'd have to call BC Hydro. We'd go in and we'd do all our things. Okay, now we have to call BC Hydro, and they're super busy, and they would take, you know, they, they would take a long time to get to us because we were a lot of rural areas and a lot of stuff. So um, they loved doing it, great guys to work with, but uh, they were busy like we were, and so it would always take a lot of time. And so there's one guy that I worked with, his name was John, and he was a bit more of a veteran. I learned a lot of stuff from him on how to be a police officer, a really good guy. And, uh, and anyway, so one day, he's, he's kind of, you know, we are kind of tired of doing these things, because a lot of labor, a lot of hard work, and you know, I got into to be a police officer, I don't like doing hard labor, and so when you have to do hard labor, it's actually quite exhausting for a guy like me. So, so anyway, so we started doing this hard labor, and, and, uh, and so... Um, I see John pick up a pair of bolt cutters, and he goes over to the panel. I said, "John, what are you doing?" He's like, "Well, you know what? We're gonna call BC Hydro. We're gonna be here for two hours. Let's just take the panel off ourselves." I'm like, "John, like you're you're kind of do-it-yourself guy. I understand that. You know, you do a little things around your house. But do you really want to play with the main line that goes into a house and electrical and all that stuff?" And he's like, "Oh, well, all the power's off. We're good." And I'm like, "John, you probably shouldn't cut that." And so I said, okay, whatever, you're the veteran, I'm just the rookie, I don't know what I'm doing. So I go over here, and I continue doing what I'm doing, and all I hear is this, boom! And I look over, and he's sitting holding the bolt cutters, and his eyes are this wide, and he didn't have a hair on the top of his head, but he had a hair around the side, and what he had was standing up on end. And he was sitting there shaking, doing this. And I looked over, and in the bolt cutters, where they were, there was a huge arc in the middle of the bolt cutters, and he had fried himself. If you don't know what you're doing, it can actually turn out very poorly for you. He didn't know what he was doing. So a lot of reasons, a lot of, a lot of us, we, we don't actually, we're not engaged in the disciple-making process because we don't know what we're doing. We have no idea, we don't even know what it looks like and how to get it started. And I want to say this, a little caveat here. For some of you, um, your journey of following Jesus has just started right, you're new to the faith, um, that's okay. You need to learn how to crawl before you get up and walk and then eventually start running. So if you're a new Christian, take the time just to get to know the God that you're following and you're serving, right? There's a bit of a grace period there for new believers to say, okay, well, you're, we're not going to throw you into the deep end yet, but get to know God. But eventually there will come a time when you're mature enough in your faith that God will call you to look outside of yourself and start being a resource and a blessing to others. That's what being a Christian means, you have to learn how to crawl before you run. I know um, our daughter, she's uh, she's 10 months old, almost 11 months old, and, and um, she's a bit of a, a late crawler, and she hasn't started crawling until recently, the last week. And so, Boxing Day, we're sitting down, and Danielle's parents were over, and we're sitting down, and we're watching um, the World Juniors hockey there, and we're sitting back, and the U.S. is beating Canada. and so, But we're sitting, we're talking, and we're watching, and, and I'm not used to, you know, when Layla's sitting down, and she's playing, I just... I'm going to be honest, I just kind of ignore her. Right? She's just sitting there, she's playing, she doesn't need anything, she's not crying. I don't, don't judge me like you don't do the same thing. She was sitting there and she was crying. <laughs> and I'm not really paying attention to her. All right? Parenting fail, I'm not paying attention to her. She wasn't choking on Lego or anything, she was fine. She's sitting there, she's playing. And then all of a sudden, I look over and she starts, she's crawl. She craw- I didn't see this because I'm not paying attention. She crawls over to uh, the, the end table and she's sitting there and she's gulping down a thing of cream soda. So I look over, and I'm like, well, hey, give me the, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, she's learning to crawl. So, you know, for those of you who maybe, you know, it's your, you can remember, it's your first kid. You're all like, oh, I can't, can't wait for them to start crawling and walking. Like, no, you don't. No, you don't. Like, you know. If that was our third kid, we probably would have called poison control, you know, and would have been really nervous and scared, but it's our third. So Danielle and I were like, well, do we need to feed her lunch? I mean, she should be, she should be good. She had a thing of cream soda. She's all right. <laughs> but so there's a bit of a grace period there for those of you who are new to the faith um, you know get to know God get to understand him and and then there's a point where God will call you outside of yourself and to start being a blessing and a resource to others uh, for some of you um, you don't know how and the reason for that is you just you have a hard time with the social aspect of making disciples because making disciples means you have to engage with people and that's not really your strong suit um, we're just going to call it as it is um, you're socially awkward. And for you, um, talking to people is painful. It is just painful. You would just rather, like, your happy place is at, in your house alone with your pets. And that's kind of your happy place, and that's where you like to be. If you could just never see anyone again, that would be great. Um, and so it's hard for you. It's really, it's really hard for you to, to actually engage with people. And Like, how am I going to tell somebody about Jesus? How am I going to talk to somebody about God? How am I going to help them to follow Jesus and and model for them what that looks like when I just, man, I have such a hard time talking to people? The beautiful thing about the gospel is God takes people who are so inadequate for the job and he, through his power, gets it done and gets it done in amazing ways. So unfortunately, your social awkwardness is not an excuse to back out of the Great Commission. Unfortunately, it's not. Second point, why we don't, um, we're too afraid. Look at the person next to you and say, I'm a little scared. Just do it. Just call it out. Say it. Get it out in the open. Clear the air. I'm a little scared. It's true. The thought of telling someone about Jesus, the thought of engaging someone on a serious level to follow Jesus, it's scary. It is. It is scary. And the reason for this is that we take the gospel very personally. How many of you here, you're authentic believers and and God has just really done something in your life in a real personal way, has touched the depths of your soul in such a deep way that no one else even knows about it or will ever know about it? It's a very, very personal thing. When you get to know Jesus and you start following Jesus, that's a very, very personal, deep thing. And so we feel that because it's deep, because it's personal, we feel that. Someone rejecting Jesus, well, that means they're rejecting me. Someone making fun of Jesus or calling it down, well, that's a personal attack. And for most of us, we're not good with confrontation, so we just bow out. We don't want to do that because it's personal. And I wish there was an easy solution for this, but it's not. The reality of it is it is an attack. God is your Father. These are your brothers and sisters. When someone calls down God or rejects God, or when someone makes fun of your church, or someone denies you know, whatever, you're just a bunch of fools, whatever the case, yeah, that does hurt a little bit. Because we are family. God is our father. We it is something that's personal. But following Jesus um, requires thick skin. It requires thick skin. If you're going to be in the heat of making disciples, and some of you know this. Some of you that are actively out there, being missional every day in your life, you know this. We can't be offended all the time. Just because someone doesn't believe what you believe, just because someone says something negative about our questions or is skeptical, we can't be so easily offended all the time. It requires thick skin because even though those people reject you, even though those people say that you're an idiot, you're a fool, you're dumb, like how can you believe in that? You're, so, you're a sheep. How, how can you do that? Your call is still even to love them, even in that point. So you can't be offended all the time. You need thick skin. It's hard. Sometimes it's lonely. Sometimes it's rough. Jesus said it would be. He said, foxes have dens, birds have nests. Got nothing. He was falsely accused, falsely tried, he was murdered. It wasn't the death penalty, he was murdered. And then he says, hey, come follow me. That's what what it looks like. It's not easy, it's not for the, the faint of heart. Peter was also scared. We read the story of Peter and about how um, when Jesus was getting falsely tried, um, he said earlier on in that day, he, you know, Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter's like, never. I would never do that. I've seen your miracles. I've seen the things that you do and who I know who you are. Can you imagine that? Actually walking with Jesus, seeing those things and how much that would impact you and change you. I would never do that. I would never deny you. I will die with you. And then what happened? We know the story. I don't know him. When the heat came on and Jesus was getting falsely accused and falsely tried, I don't know him. No idea who he is. And for a lot of us, we've been there. We've done that. We've denied Jesus in the face of our family, in the face of our friends, because we don't want to count the cost at the moment. We're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. And I think I have a bit of an answer for this fear this crippling fear. I think I have a bit of a solution for this, and I see this in the text. See, when we go out and we step out and we follow Jesus, it goes against our very nature. Because intrinsically, you know, science would say we have survival mentalities. Like, people would do what they have to do to survive. One of our basic instincts is self-preservation. Self-preservation. The hard part about that is that Jesus calls us to the opposite. Think about it. Your resources, your time, your reputation, your happiness, your comfort, your social network, your health, all of these things. All of these things. Self-preservation. We need to preserve these things. And it's not until we come to the resolution in our own heart that we're willing to let those things go for the purpose of following Jesus. It's not until that point when we say, God, I don't care what this means for me. I don't care what it means. This is going to be bad. I'm just going to accept it as it is right now. This is going to go poorly. I'm going to follow you. And I don't care what that means for me. Because loving you and serving you brings me more joy and happiness than any of this stuff ever could. You're my father, my identity is in you, and I am serving you. I don't care if if this goes bad for me here, in my job, with my friends, with my family doesn't matter. You'll get me through it. You see, when we let go of the self-preservation, we're not afraid to lose anything anymore. That's what Christian maturity looks like. That's what Paul's mentality was when he says, it doesn't matter to me. I'm here to bless you. And that's great. But if something bad happens to me and I die, then I get to be with Jesus. And that's far better. So you know what? Either way, I win. self-preservation was gone he knew that whatever he needed god would provide and he just went out and he did it see the reason a lot of the times that we just we cripple back in fear is because of self-preservation as a christian you need to let that go that's what being a mature believer looks like you need to let that go or else it'll be hard to be effective for the kingdom If you're worried about your reputation, if you're worried about your resources, if you're worried about all these things, you will have a hard time following Jesus. It's just the truth of it. Point number three, last point here of why we don't. And this is part, the biggest problem probably for most of us, and really is the root of all of our obedience issues is that we're too indifferent. You see, we live in a broken world full of broken people, we're all broken. And God's plan, what he's doing among us now, is again, he's putting together broken people. His mission is to restore broken people. That's the gospel. That's Christianity. It's God restoring the brokenness. It's what he loves. It's what he's invested in. It's what he's passionate about. And it's literally the most important thing that you can do with your life, is to be on mission with God. It's the most important thing. And most of us just don't care Can we just be, let's just be honest, let's be real frank. We just don't care. It doesn't consume enough of our passion and our energy to even care. We look around and we see the brokenness around us. And we see, you know, and it's just like, well, I got stuff to do. I got got stuff. I got stuff to do. I got, I can't engage in the brokenness within my church family. I can't engage in the brokenness with my community. I can't, it's just like, it's, it's too much to do. It's busy. I got kids. I got a million different excuses come in. I just, the reality of it is we just don't care. Have you ever heard that term, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference? It's so true. Indifference is a horrible, horrible thing. You married guys know this. Um, we've, my wife and I were currently renovating our basement. My father-in-law has really helped me out with this. And so I'm looking at things like, okay, like here's structurally how this needs to look, pretending like I know what I'm talking about. Structurally, this is how this needs to look, and we need to do this, we need to do that. And, and Daniel's like, well, honey, like what paint color? I don't care. It's paint. Paint it purple. It doesn't matter to me. I, I don't care. I really don't care. And that infuriates her. That makes her angry. Husbands, don't be indifferent to when your wife asks you something. Even if you don't care, you pretend that you care. Right? Any older married guides say amen? Am I preaching truth here? If I'm not, just kick me off the stage. I'm preaching truth. You know, honey, what kind of baseboards? I I don't honey, I don't care. I, I learned married almost 12 years now, I understand the fact that, honey, you know what? This grayish looks great. I didn't even know it was a color prior to five minutes ago, but it looks great. I love it. I think it'll look good with the carpet, you know? I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I try to be interested in the things that my wife's are interested in, because I love her, because I, you know, I, want, I want us to be connected. How many of you guys out there, you watch Grey's Anatomy or some other like total chick show? Don't lie. Don't, raise your hand. Grey's Anatomy, anyone? Jordan, I know you do for fact. <laughs> anyone else? Paul, I've heard of you watching chick shows as well. Don't shake your head like you don't. Yeah, I know you do. We're friends. Anyone else? You watch the romantic comedies, guys? The romantic comedies. Right? You, we do that because we love our wives. We try to be interested in, in the things that they're interested in, even though sometimes it's painful. We try to be interested in. You know, some of us claim to love God but are completely indifferent to what's important to Him. Some of us love, we claim, we say with our mouth that we love God, but we are completely indifferent to what's important to Him. You know, all of us struggle with a hardened heart, and my prayer this morning is that our love for God would, through the Word would be rekindled, that we would love Him, and that serving Him and partnering with Him in the work that He's already doing would be a joy to us. Because unless there's joy behind our discipline, it will never last. Do you hear me on that? If you're going to take notes, take notes on that. Unless there is joy behind our discipline, it will never last. Some of you are going to go to the gym tomorrow. And you're going to hate every second of it. And it's going to last about two weeks and you're going to go right back to what you want to do. That's what's going to happen. Unless discipline, is, unless joy and delight is behind our discipline. It won't, won't last. So my prayer is that our love for God would be rekindled. And so I want to go into quickly what disciple-making actually looks like. Really practical. I mean, we say, go and make disciples. And really, it's like, what are you talking about? I don't know what that means. I don't even know what that looks like. And I've I, I boiled it down to two things. I've boiled it down to two things. It's modeling. It's being Um, being somebody that somebody else can imitate. And the second point is teaching, teaching them to obey. So the first point in disciple-making is this, modeling. Um, I want you to turn, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians 1. Um, uh, uh, The book of Thessalonians, Apostle Paul was writing to a church in Thessalonica, and there was a new church there, new believers, really doing awesome things. Paul came in, and he taught them about God, taught them about Jesus, And he modeled for them. He imitated what it looks like to be a believer. And we see that in here. Um, Pick it up in verse 2. 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Constantly. So Paul's writing to the church. He's giving thanks for them. Mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before God and uh, Father your work of faith. And labor of love. And steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you uh, not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Um, That that verse has been following me around for just weeks. And that's been my prayer for this church. Um, That's just a bit of an aside. That the gospel would come to us not only in word but with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's my prayer over this church. And he goes on to say, you know what kind of men we've proved to be among you for your sake. They were models. They were modeling for for the church. And you became imitators. Say "Imitators." imitators. You became imitators of us and the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all for the believers in Macedonia and Achaia." So what happened was Paul came in and he modeled for them what it what it looks like to be a believer. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a model. Do it. Just do it. It's fun. You wake you up. And you're a model. It's true. It's true. Right now, if you're a self-identifying believer, if people know you're a Christian, they are looking at your life and they are assuming that this is what it looks like to be a believer. And my question to you is, what would they see? What would they see? One of Paul's key phrases is that you imitated us as we imitated Christ. What this means for us, if we're going to be imitators, if we're going to be models for people, we actually need to get close enough to people to allow them to see the intricacies and in the, in the details of our life. That's what that means. That's why we, we put such a big um, push on life groups. Is that we have people living together in close community so that you can see, you can model for one another. This is what it looks like to be a Christian. When I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't become a Christian until I was almost an adult in my late teens. And I had no idea what being a Christian dad looked like. I had no idea what just being a Christian man, what, it, what did it look like to follow God as a man? I had no idea. And I went to a church as a, as a, as a young adult, as a, as a, as a late teen, and, and, and looked at these guys. These guys, you know, we would hang out and, and um, by the way, parents, one of the most strong, the best ministries that you could have um, if you have um, kids that are teenagers, is to have, make your home a place where all the kids want to come and hang out. That's just a great place because that's what we had. When I was, when I was young, I had a friend and her parents were amazing, amazing believers. And they, would ma- they made it a purpose. They set up their house so that um, all of their, their kids' friends, their teenage friends, would want to come over and hang out at their house. And as I hung out at their house, I started looking and I started observing because they would have me over for dinner and we would sit down and I would say, okay, this is how a Christian man does a dinner time. You pray with your kids and you, okay, that's great. Oh, being a Christian man, oh, it means that you, you laugh and you have fun and there's lots of joy there. Oh, that's great. Oh, it means that you take the Bible very seriously and that you love. Okay, this, I had no idea before that. We need to be purposeful in just engaging and doing life together. It's, it's not for just, hey, let's just get together because we've got nothing else to do and we don't have any friends. That's not the case. We get together for a purpose for a reason, is to model for one another, to model for you you, people who are mature in your faith. The call is on you to get together with people who are immature in their faith and just to do life with them. Eat. Celebrate things together. Go see a movie together. Go for dinner together. Help each other, you know, raise your kids. Do Whatever you have to do, just do life together. Talk about retirement together. Go, whatever. Just do life together because then you become a model for them. They imitate you. That's what discipleship looks like. And some of us, we're afraid because we don't want, we're, we're vulnerable. Like, we don't want to be vulnerable. Because that means that, that I have to open my life up to you people. I have to open up and say, look, I, I'm, I may look like I have it all together. We, you may look like you have it all together. But the reality of it is we don't. And we put up this facade like, hey, I'm good, I'm fine, I got it all together. But what happens is you let someone in long enough like you watch me in my home for about 10 minutes and you're gonna see, man, this guy has sin, this guy has issues, he has problems. This is the reality of it. There's things that I wrestle with, there's things that I struggle with, things that you wrestle with, things that you struggle with. But what happens is when we put up this facade on social media, on whatever, like, hey, life's great, selfie, you know what I mean? What happens is you put pressure on everybody else to be perfect. That's what happens. You're like, oh, look at my nice, cozy life, it's so perfect. You're not Instagramming you sitting there in tears like, oh, life is so hard, I'm so depressed. People don't do that. You put pressure on everybody else to be perfect when you yourself try to portray this facade that life is perfect for you, life is good for you. What happens is, when you let people in and you let them see your sin, you let them see your repentance, you let them see the ugliness that is in your life, What happens is, whether you've been friends with them forever and you're totally comfortable or whether that's the first time they're in your living room, what happens is you give them permission to be broken. And that is the only prerequisite to accepting the gospel, is you have to admit your brokenness and your need for a savior. So when you, who are mature in your faith, when you, who are along in years, when you, who have a great reputation, allow yourself to be broken in front of people, you give, that's so much power in that. You give people permission to be broken and to accept and understand the gospel in a real way. And real kingdom work gets done. We need to be imitators. The second part, teaching them to obey. It's one of my last points here, teaching them to obey. Um, have you ever heard that term, or I heard it quoted by a number of different people, but it says, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words? I hate that hate that. That's a bad quote. Some people say, well, it was Francis of Assisi that said it, you know, theologian back in the... No, it wasn't. He didn't say that. <laughs> he, he didn't say that. It's a wrong quote. He didn't say that. You go through any of his writings, he did not say that. Preach the gospel, uh, and when necessary, use words of someone who said that, who was afraid to talk. Eventually, you're going to have to say something. Eventually, you're going to have to say something. You're a good work. A lot of people do a lot of good things. You don't just naturally assume because someone's a good person. There could be good people out there that don't believe in Jesus. There's great people out there that are atheists, that do a whole bunch of humanitarian aid work, who do more for their community than I ever will. They're good people. Don't love Jesus, destined for hell, but they're Great people. Great people. You need to say something. Your good works are great because they paint a context for people. When you say God loves you, and you just brought them a warm meal because they're hungry, that gives them a context. That gives them a picture of what it looks like, God's love looks like. He provides everything that you're going to need. I don't have much, but here's what I have. That gives people a context. When you go out and you serve your community or you do soup kitchens or you, you do clean up whatever it is that you do in your community to serve and you help people move, when you That all paints a context, and it's kind of like a word picture for people. This is what God's love looks like. That's great, and we need to do that. But also, there's going to come a time when you need to say something. When you need to say something. We are called to preach. We are called to bring the word to people. And I love the Great Commission, because at the end it says, surely I will be with you to the end of the age. What that means is that the power doesn't come from us and our elegant words, it 's from God and the power of God, like my words, I could say, st- if God doesn 't show up here and the Holy Spirit doesn 't do something here, you 're all going to leave and forget this completely, hopefully. like you 're going to leave and you're just going to forget. But when God engages you, truth sticks into your heart and it changes the way. You feel. It changes the way you live. It, it works from the inside out and it grows in you. That's what the Word of God does. It has power. And it is the only thing, in my opinion, that has the power to actually change a person. To actually change a person is the Word of God. It has power when the Holy Spirit shows up. That's why Paul in 1 Thessalonians says there was the Word, the Holy Spirit came, resulted in full conviction. We need to say something. And here's the good news. You don't have to be smart. Like some of you look, some of you stand there, like you sit there and you look up at Pastor Matt, amazing pastor, amazing preacher, um, you know, stands up here and he says things so eloquently and he says things so nicely and you're going, I can't do that, I could never do that. Like, I could never pull off skinny jeans, like I can't wear... The shirt with, like, the polka dots button all the way up here. Like, I'm not, I can't, I'm not, it's not me. It's not, it's his thing. It's not my thing. I love making fun of him when he's not here. Um, it's just, it's, it's not my thing. It's not my thing. But the reality of it is you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be articulate. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be your thing. Paul says a million times, when I came to you, so this is the most spiritually authoritative man with the most credentials you could ever find in all the world. Apostle Paul. He says it. I have more credentials than any of you can buy. He says, I came to you pretending to know nothing except Christ crucified. I came to you with trembling. I came to you in fear. I came to you in a rough state pretending to know nothing but Jesus and him, him crucified. The basics, the basics, basics of the gospel. And what happened? The world exploded. The world exploded. You're sitting here today because of the Apostle Paul pretending to know nothing except for Christ crucified. The world literally exploded because that's how he came. He didn't come with articulation. He didn't come with a Bible degree. He didn't come with all of those things. Eventually we're going to have to say something and you don't have to be smart to say it. God can use the most idiotic things out of your mouth to do amazing things. It's true. Disciple making, modeling, you have to be intentional, you have to get together with people, you have to follow Jesus yourself to give something people to imitate. And two, you're going to have to say something. You're going to have to share truth. You're going to have to understand and know your Bible enough to be able to say, here's the basics of the gospel and what this looks like. And it's scary and you're going to have to let go of your self-preservation. That's what following Jesus looks like. That's what following Jesus looks like. So my hope for the new year is this, is that you can keep doing what you're doing, just being comfortable, self-preservation, doing that thing, or you can deny that, turn that away, and you can actually say, God, for the first time in my life, I'm actually going to start following you. For the first time in my life, I'm going to put aside my reputation. I'm going to put aside my resources. I'm going, to put aside. I'm going to be prepared. It doesn't mean you're going to lose all those things. It just means you need to be prepared. I know people that have gone out on a limb for Christ so much so and are so respected because of it. Like, look at Billy Graham. Like, look at Billy Graham. He, there's nothing and no self-preservation in his life whatsoever. Preach the gospel doesn't matter to who. Millions of people have saved through him, and everybody. There's not, there's not many people are going to go, Yeah, hey, that guy's an idiot. Like Billy Graham. Like There's a certain sense of reverence when you talk about Billy Graham. He's amazing. The reality of it is, is you may go out on a limb and start preaching Jesus all over the place, and people may respect you for it. You may become a leader in the places that you are. God may raise you up to that. You'll never know if you don't say anything. Or you may lose your friends. You may lose your family. You may give up all your resources and your time and your energy to be involved in the process of making disciples and it could absolutely drain you. And you could literally get no results from it. You just are put in a place with really hard people, really hard hearts. It doesn't matter if the work is tough. It's sitting there with your father doing the work that's the beautiful thing about it. That's where the beauty comes in. That's where the joy comes in. So part of following God, part of doing that is remembering. And we're going to move into a time of communion. Um, So for those of you who are serving communion, doing that thing, I'll get you up there now, and Tyson, if you want to come up. So what I want you to do for communion, I want you to picture this for me. Okay, just just picture this for me. Don't close your eyes because you're going to fall asleep. Just picture this for me. I want you to picture a big table right here. Huge table, all right? then i want you to picture all of us brothers and sisters in christ guests everybody sitting around it and then i want you to picture jesus at the head of the table and he says i want you to remember me his life death and resurrection happened over two thousand years ago i forget what i did last week we need to remember we need to remember so what that looks like is that we sit around a table as family And Jesus said, take the bread and let it remind you of my body that was broken for you. When you break the bread, let it remind you that my body was broken for you. I paid the penalty for your sin. You are the one who should have been broken, but I will be broken for you because I love you. And then the same thing with the blood shed. That should be our blood on the ground underneath the cross. But it was Jesus so that we could be free. And he says, whenever you take this cup of wine or Welch's grape juice, whatever your preference is, I want you to remember me. Remember my blood shed for you. We remember. That's how we honor Jesus. That's how we do that. We sit around a table, as family, and we remember. And, uh, and so you guys can go ahead. Are we passing it around? Is that what we're doing? Or are people coming up? let's do it people are coming up so whenever (laughs) sometimes you just got to make that authoritative call so what's going to happen is um we're going to have servers up here and um and when you sit and you pray and you feel ready just come on up and uh, take the bread take the cup and remember remember what christ has done for you and that's what we do as a family Uh, for those of you here who are visiting with us um, this is something that we do as a family and there's no expectation on you whatever to come up, so don't feel like you have to. It'd be perfectly fine to sit there. Um, and so we're going to start doing that. So let's, uh, I'm going to pray and then we can start making our way up. Lord, I just thank you so much for your love for us. God, I thank you so much that you call us to work with you. Father, I want to pray over my brothers and sisters right now. God, I pray that you would rekindle our love for you so that serving you and doing literally the most important thing that you've called us to do aside from loving you, um, that we would find joy in that, that we would find delight in that. God, I pray that um, as, um, as we take this call seriously, God, I pray that you would multiply this church. I pray that more and more people would experience your saving grace. God, I pray that you would more... You would make our family bigger, that people would find joy and peace in you that they've been searching for their whole life. They would find that in you, here amongst us. God, I pray that we would begin to have problems like space issues. God, I I just pray that we would have just logistical issues of how we even meet together as a family. I pray that you would multiply us, God, for your namesake, for your glory, God, that we would take your call seriously, that we would follow you and that work for the kingdom would get done and I thank you God that you take us who are so just underqualified for this that we literally have nothing to offer God and you give us everything so I pray Lord that you would you would do that in us and I just pray Lord as we take this time God that um, you, would, you would do all that through, through communion as we sit as we remember God that you would re- rekindle our hearts <laughs> In Jesus' name, Amen. So you can come up.